There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now today we have something a bit different for you. Last week, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, brought a report to the Cabinet recommending a presidential pardon for John Twiss, a 34-year-old carryman who was executed for murder in 1895. If, as expected, President Higgins acquiesces to the government's recommendation, Twiss will become only the fifth person to receive a presidential pardon since the foundation of the state. Now, even at the time of his death, the execution of John Twist was a hugely controversial event. He was convicted on the 9th of January 1895 of the murder of James Donovan and hung in Cork jail exactly a month later. During the period after his sentence was handed down, there was a huge swell of support for his case and sympathy for his plight. It was brought up in the House of Commons at the time and a petition pleading for clemency was started and garnered 40,000 signatories, a huge number for such an exercise in the Ireland of the Times. Despite that, the execution went ahead as planned. Here today, we're going to tell the story of John Twist and what befell him. We have an actor, Shane Nestor, who will relate the coverage of his execution and the aftermath on the day it took place from newspaper reports at the time. You'll hear in the recounting that the coroner's court into his death was conducted within hours of the execution, something that we might find today to be a little unusual. And apart from that, I'll give the backstory of what led up to this man being taken to a scaffold where his life was cut short for a crime he did not commit. At one minute past eight this morning, John Twist was hanged in the county jail near this city. He had been condemned to death by the chief baron exactly one month ago, having been found guilty of the murder of a caretaker named James Donovan at Glenlara in northwest Cork. Twist met death with the firmness of a brave man, the spirit of a martyr and the soul of a child. So the accounts obtained by the reporters agree in stating. For the last time he protested on the threshold of the execution room, his innocence of the crime for which he was about to suffer. When the reporters were admitted to the jail, about ten minutes past eight, they were met by Mr Andrews, the governor. Twiss, he said, declared his innocence almost as he stepped on the scaffold. Crossing the yard which leads to the execution room, Father O'Leary, to whose ministrations Twiss had been most attentive from the moment of his conviction, was pale as a sheet and utterly worn out. He could hardly speak after the terrible scene he had witnessed. But in reply to a question, he said, Twiss declared himself to be innocent 
His exact words I remember well, but I cannot give them to you now. Near the execution room, Mr. John Gale, the sub-sheriff, spoke. Twist said he had never seen Donovan's house or the sky over it. He never saw the man or his child. It will be remembered that this child of Donovan was the principal witness against Twiss. He was aged seven or eight years, and it was admitted that he had also identified another man as being present at the murder, who is proved, even to the satisfaction of the police, could not have been there. Now, nine months before that fateful day, in the early hours of the 21st of April, 1894, somebody entered a house occupied by James Donovan intent on murder. The house is in the townland of Glenlara, about three miles from Newmarket in County Cork. Donovan would not have been a popular figure locally, or wherever people knew him, to be honest. He acted as an agent for landlords, occupying houses from which tenants were evicted until a more permanent solution could be found for the properties. Ironically, he had been evicted from his own home a few years previously, but the experience apparently did not alienate him from the landlord class. The role he performed was known as that of an emergency man, as in he was the man that stayed in there until such time, as they say, as a permanent solution was found. On the night in question, he was occupying a section of the house from which the tenant, James Kennelly, had been evicted. Kennelly and his family then moved into another part of the house, which was occupied by his brother John and his family. Again, this was a scenario where perhaps different landlords would have had um, a house and they would have had different tenants occupying part of it. But after James Kennelly and his family moved in with his brother, there was then in total four adults and ten children living in a couple of rooms in that part of the house. Donovan, by contrast, had the rest of the house to himself and he was staying there with his seven-year-old son. Somebody, at some point in the early hours of that morning, attacked James Donovan and beat him savagely. The Kennellys heard the racket being made by the attack, but they didn't come out of their rooms. They would later say they assumed that it was a Moonlighters raid, and the Moonlighters were a group who basically were part of the land wars at the time, who saw themselves as acting on behalf of tenants, and were welcomed by an awful lot of tenants in some instances, and they also resorted to violence at times where they felt a major injustice was being done. There was an assumption by the Canellis who were in the other part of the house that this was them at work in the early hours of that morning and to be fair it was a very reasonable assumption. The attack is believed to have started in the house and continued outside in the yard. Donovan was also shot in the arm. John Canelli would later say that he found Donovan in the yard at 7am and attempted to revive him. Donovan, Canelli would claim, was alive when he first found him. This would be disputed by medical evidence. The execution room is a small outbuilding in a yard at the rear of the jail. The floor is flush with the yard outside. More than half of it composes the drop. Everything was silent. Even the rope still swung like a pendulum from the heavy crossbeam which spanned the room. It was necessary to protrude the head beyond the edge of the pit to see the body. 
It swung slowly to and fro, and the body is of a well-made man, apparently about the medium height, and judging by its fullness, a man in robust health. The knot was directly under the chin, and this with the hands pinioned behind the back gave the chest an appearance of great depth. The face was turned upwards and was covered with a white hood which entirely concealed the features. The neck was very full and was already turning a bluish grey. The hands were blue. The collarless blue check shirt worn by twists was torn underneath the collar on one side, evidently by the wrench of the drop. He was dressed in a worn tweed suit. Billington was the executioner, and it is doubtful if twists lived for any time after the bolt was pulled. All day yesterday, Twiss was praying fervently and told the mayor who visited him that he was not afraid to die being innocent. He asked that his worship should see him this morning and the mayor intended to assist at the mass which the prisoner heard before execution. On arrival at the jail at 6.30, his worship was, however, refused admission on the ground that he was not a visiting justice. Twiss was restless up to midnight, but then slept well until six o'clock. He heard Mass and received Holy Communion afterwards. He ate a good breakfast, consisting of tea, eggs and bread and butter. He then returned to the chapel with the clergyman and spent the remainder of his life in prayer. Only at one moment did he lose his collected manner. This was just before he protested his innocence, when he wept for a short time and said that his sister would be lonely and would have no one to support her. Then he recovered himself and used his remaining minute of life to assert his innocence. Now John Twist was, I suppose like the vast majority of his countrymen and women at the time, from the peasant class as it was known in the late 19th century. He lived in a cottage in Cardell, which is a townland a few miles outside Castle Island in County Kerry, with his sister Jane. They scraped the living in local fairs or from the very small holding that surrounded their cottage. Twist was involved in land agitation with other moonlighters at the time and I think there would have been very little that would have been unusual about that. He was certainly suspected of being involved in something but as I say there was very little to connect him to what occurred across the county bounds in Glenlara where this man Donovan was killed. Following the murder a number of different individuals were arrested and detained. The brutal nature of the killing and Donovan's occupation as an effective agent for landlords meant there was huge political pressure to find culprits. For example, two men who were described as tramps were detained in Mallow on the Monday night after the killing which had occurred on Saturday. They were released on the following Friday and according to the Cork Examiner of the day, as there was no evidence against them in connection with the terrible affair. The paper goes on to say the accused left the town immediately after their discharge. Now on the same day the police came for Twiss in his home in Cardle. He was, again quoting the newspaper, conveyed to Newmarket by rail in custody on a charge of being one of the party who murdered the caretaker James Donovan at Glenlara on Saturday morning last. He was brought up at the Newmarket police barrack before Colonel R. W. Aldworth where it appeared he was arrested 
in Castle Island on suspicion of being concerned in the murder. And you'll make small allowances for um, the different uh, version of English as we know it today in that newspaper report. Now, Twiss was not the only man arrested at that time. Another man, Eugene Keefe, who was, unlike Twist, was local to Glenlara. I should point out also that Cordell, where Twist lived, was 16 miles from Glenlara and across the county bounds in Kerry. But this other man, Eugene Keefe, was local to Glenlara and there appears to have been little evidence against him either, apart from the fact that he was related to the Kennellys, who, remember, were the subject of the eviction that saw the murdered man Donovan put into the house in the first place. It also turned out that Keefe's own family had suffered the same fate the previous year. That was the situation that ended after the initial investigation. The police now had what they believed were two prime suspects for... Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This murder. The persons present at the execution were Mr. John Gale, County Sub-Sheriff, Mr. Andrews, Governor, and Mr. MacArthur's Deputy Governor of the Prison. Dr Moriarty, the clergyman, Fathers O'Leary and Mintern, and a number of warders. Mr Henry L. Young, County Sheriff, promised that three reporters would be admitted to see the execution, but it is said Mr Gale induced him to change his mind. As will be seen from the report of the inquest, the condemned man was most anxious to make his declaration of innocence to a press man who would be able to give faithful record of every word he uttered. Outside the jail, about 300 persons had assembled. As the black flag went up, they all, at a signal from the Major, knelt down on the snow-covered road and remained in that position as long as the flag flew. At 9.30 punctually, Coroner Horgan's solicitor began the inquest with a jury of 18. District Inspector Cray was present to watch the proceedings on behalf of the constabulary. He occupied a seat in the darkest corner of the guardroom in which the inquest was held and his presence was scarcely noticeable. Before swearing the jury, the coroner asked if the constabulary had served the summons on the executioner which he had given them to serve. Sergeant Henry Victoria Cross said he had. The jury was then sworn. The press representatives were allowed to view the body with the jury. It had been cut down and coffined in the execution chamber and the white cap had been removed from the head. The hands were half closed, the mouth open and the lips had a deep blue colour. The eyes were half shut. The whole face had a light bluish tinge and the mark of the rope was rapidly darkening on the neck. The features of the deceased were refined and his hair, which was light in colour, gave him a youthful appearance. Now, crucially, Twiss and Keefe were tried separately, both in Cork City. Keefe's trial proceeded first 
in December 1894, and he was lucky in that the counsel defending him was a celebrated advocate, Arthur Hackett. The lawyer told the jury that he was directly charging the police with manufacturing evidence, and then to quote, so that they could send Keefe to the scaffold. Now that was a fairly full-on challenge by a lawyer against the police in the times that were there. John Kennelly, whom you'll remember, was the man who had been evicted and was living with his brother. He took the stand in the trial and he stated that a Constable Harris had been the first policeman on the scene on the morning of the murder. This Constable, Kennelly said, had asked Donovan's son if he knew the man or men responsible and the boy replied that he did not. Now, that is crucial because the son's evidence was central ultimately to the case against Twist and in this instance against Keefe. Yet, Manu was on the scene is saying that the initial reaction from the son was that he didn't see or know the men who were responsible. The only problem was this Constable Harris that was referenced as being the first policeman on the scene was not in court. And initially, the prosecution claimed that there was no such Constable Harris. Only when Keith's lawyer did further digging and questioning, it emerged that Constable Harris was indeed a man who was there that morning. He was the local policeman. He had been first on the scene. And since the murder, he'd been transferred to Galway. And he was not there at the trial. Now, think about that for a minute. Crucial witness, first man on the scene, and he was not at the trial, and since the murder, perhaps conveniently or not, he'd been moved way up the country to Galway at that stage. The absence of such a crucial witness, you might have thought, would have scuppered the whole trial, and I could suggest it certainly would today in how we operate the courts. And you could have said that it would have collapsed the case there and then, and you might also suggest that this would also collapse the case against Twiss. As it was to turn out, that did not happen. However, Keith's lawyer made such a good case for him and he highlighted the stuff that was going on with the police to such an extent that the jury found him not guilty. And Keith walked. Now remember, this man Eugene Keith, close relative of the evicted people, local man, there wasn't evidence against him, but certainly his connection to the case was far, far greater than that of John Twiss. Yet now he had walked free. And politically, at the very least, you might suggest that in the Ireland of the time, with a landlord's agent having been murdered, that further onus would be on the jury and the system to convict somebody for this murder. The only man left standing in that respect was John Twiss. His trial took place over three days from the 6th of January 1895, some weeks after the end of Keefe's trial. He wasn't well represented, but even within that, some of the prosecution case could only be described as farcical. John Brosnan, the witness who had claimed that Twist had got a gun in the days before the murder, gave evidence and he was asked straight out whether he had been bribed to give his testimony. It was put to him by the lawyer for Twist. Is it your conscience or your pocket making you give evidence? To which Brosnan replied, I saw no money from them. 
and he was asked, and you don't expect to get a penny? Surely they can't have me here for nothing, he replied. That of itself would suggest that the man was expecting something for giving testimony, but, notwithstanding that, his evidence wasn't thrown out. At the end of the three-day trial, the jury returned a guilty verdict on John Twiss. And from there, he was handed the death sentence. The first witness examined was Thomas Andrews, governor of the jail. He handed in a warrant for the execution and read the sentence handed down by Lord Chief Barron to John Twiss aloud. The sentence and judgment of the court is, and I do hereby adjudge, that you, John Twiss, be taken from the bar of the court where you now stand to the place from hence you came in Her Majesty's prison in this county on Saturday the 9th February in the year of our Lord, 1895, and that you be taken to the place of common execution within the walls of the prison in which you shall be then confined, and that you shall then and there be hanged by the neck until you are dead, and that your body be buried within the precincts of the prison in which you shall have been confined, and may the Lord have mercy on your soul. James Billington, who had been summoned to attend, came forward with a dogged sort of reluctance. He said he was an executioner by profession. He is a small, burly man, black-haired and sallow-faced with a bulldog manner. His face is deeply wrinkled and a slight moustache covered his lip. He wore no tie and his frilled shirt front was ornamented by diamond studs. He wore top boots outside his trousers and a rough tweed overcoat. His answers were given in a surly fashion and with a furtive look at his questioner. The coroner asked him, There was nothing inhuman in the way you executed the deceased. No, he replied. The execution was carried out with as little pain or hurt to the deceased as possible? Yes, he said. A juror, Mr. Hayes, asked, What length of drop did you give the deceased? I'm not to answer that, am I? He replied. Yes, the coroner said, you are bound to answer it. He hesitated. The coroner asked, why not? I told the governor. The coroner said, you are bound to answer the question. Well, I give him six foot. The coroner asked, six what? Six foot. This terminated the examination of the witness who, when the coroner informed him that he was at liberty to retire, turned his back on the court in an abrupt way which had something in it and stepped into the gloom of the doorway with a quick pace. This is the first time that Billington has given evidence at an inquest. Now, within days of the conclusion of the trial, a campaign to get a reprieve for Twiss was in full flight. It was raised in the House of Commons, but to no avail. They were told that nobody could interfere with the court that had made its decision. On the 30th of January, this now was just 10 days before Twist was due to be executed, the Fermoy town commissioners wrote to the Lord Lieutenant in Dublin Castle asking him to exercise his power to grant mercy in the case. Accompanying the request was a petition signed by 40,000 people. Now, we may not appreciate it today, but that was a huge achievement in the rural Ireland of the time. Notwithstanding that, the letter was acknowledged a week later with a very short reply. The law must take its course, was what the reply said. 
Despite the outcry, despite the petition, despite what many saw as a glaring miscarriage of justice, there was no last-minute reprieve for John Twiss. Dr Moriarty, the prison physician, was the next witness. He carefully opened the Bible and brushed it with his coat sleeve before kissing it. He said I was present at the execution of this man this morning. Death seemed to be almost instantaneous. Was death instantaneous? asked the coroner. Almost instantaneous, he said. The mayor asked him, did the deceased make any statement before his death? Dr Moriarty said, I think you had better ask that of the officials. The mayor replied, I look on you as an official of the prison, doctor. Well, did he make a statement? Dr Moriarty said, he did, sir. The coroner asked, what statement did he make? He protested his innocence of the crime of which he was accused and found guilty. He said he was going to heaven. That on the night of the murder, he was in bed. And as well as I remember that he never saw the sky over the townland where the murder was committed. He also said that he never saw the woman who swore against him or the little boy of Donovan, the man who was murdered. He said all this at the door going into the scaffold room. He asked if there was a reporter present and he told Father O'Leary that he wished he would announce his confession. Father Patrick O'Leary was then sworn. The coroner asked him, I understand you wish to make a statement of some kind. I don't wish. I'm ready to answer any questions asked me. Did the deceased make a statement on the threshold of the scaffold? The coroner asked him. Yes. Within the door of the execution chamber. And as far as I can remember, and I have distinct knowledge of it, what he stated was that he was as innocent as God in heaven of the crime. That he never saw the man Donovan, nor the sky over him, nor the little boy of Donovan. That he never knew anything whatever about the murder that he was made victim by the authorities because he would not swear against respectable men. The parting from his sister was most trying for the nuns to witness. The brother and sister were speaking through the bars when the girl suddenly got weak and fell into the arms of one of the nuns. Seeing the strain, Twist suffered to keep back his tears and show a manly front. The sister said to bid goodbye for the last time. He then stretched out his hand, but shaking with suppressed emotion, gave one swift glance at his sister, and averting his head, clasped her hand for the last time, and returned to his cell, while the girl was borne away by the nuns in an almost insensible condition. The affection that Twist bore his sister was very great. He wrote her home, stating that he heard she was sick and to come to Cork if possible. The one thought that troubled him as he left the prison chapel for the scaffold was that she would now be lonely and have no one to support her. Miss Twiss is aged nearly 30, has thin features, refined in expression, 
now much lined by suffering. She is tall and slender, but apparently strong. Her dress was that of a Kerry peasant girl, including the characteristic brown shawl with shoulder circle patterns woven into it. Her headdress was her light brown hair. Five years after Twist was executed, his sister Jane died in childbirth. The baby survived and went on to have his own family. That baby and subsequent man, his granddaughter, Helen Sayers O'Connor, and her brother Dennis Sayers are the principal descendants of John Twist, and they were the ones behind the campaign to clear his name along with the Castle Island Historical Society. Helen told me that the issue over her great-granduncle had always been there since she was very young. It had always been known that he was innocent. And then they got the opportunity to do something about it when they were approached by the BBC in 2017 when the BBC was creating a series into murder mysteries. They looked at some historical cases and they took on the case of John Twiss. They provided a situation whereby they did a reenactment. They had a qualified judge and barristers who argued the case and they came to the conclusion that it had been a miscarriage of justice. Following that, the Castle Island Historical Society and the Sayers pushed the matter. They got in touch with their local TD, Brendan Griffin, who brought the issue to the then Minister for Justice, Charlie Flanagan. He, in turn, appointed Dr Neve Howlin of UCD who was an expert in 19th century law, to look at the matter. Dr Howland's report was the one that was brought to Cabinet last week and, just quoting from that report, she stated, Twiss was convicted on the basis of circumstantial evidence that can best be described as flimsy following a questionable investigation. The problematic aspects of the case are like strands in rope, which together lead to the conclusion that the nature and extent of the evidence against Twist could not safely support a guilty verdict. As I said at the outset, the pardon has now been recommended to the President and that is where the matter rests. His decision is expected within the next week or so, uh, as far as I can determine. So it is that after 126 years, John Twist will finally have his innocence officially acknowledged. That's it for today, folks. A sad tale with something, I suppose, of a redemptive ending, albeit over a century later. I'd like to thank Shane Nestor for his contributions today and, as ever, our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening and you can get us on all the usual platforms. Stand by the wall and we'll see you soon. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.